0: Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G O. M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast or take a look at the Go Markets suite of products at gomarkets.com. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of GoMarkets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions, nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at GoMarkets.com. My guest this week is Dr. Harry Stanton, a clinical psychologist, author of over nine books and 250 Plus, articles. Harry, welcome to the show. How's the weather in Sandy Bay? Beautiful
1: as ever. Tasmania's gorgeous, you know.
0: <laughs> How long have you lived in Tasmania? All your life?
1: I came down here a job offer. I couldn't. I couldn't knock back. First year, I hated it. Second year, thought, gee, this place, this place is not too bad. And that's forty odd years ago. <laughs> it's um. It's just very nice living.
0: Yeah, I so my fiance, her um, family, well her mother's family rather, they immigrated from the UK to Tasmania to Launceston, and there's a few that are in Hobart now. But um, I love at least every eighteen months we'll get down there, and I just love that that sort of A Coast mm. is absolutely gorgeous. Launceston is a small town in comparison to Melbourne. I guess Hobart's quite nice, but I I, I love it. I it's think just it's a nice uh,
1: way. It's a nice way of life, and you're surrounded by, uh, oh, really nice nature and so on. I immigrated from Melbourne and and Adelaide, so i don't think <laughs> far to come. But it's it's just a, a pleasant way of living compared mm. to the mainland.
0: Now speaking of Melbourne and Adelaide, and thinking about your childhood. Where did you actually grow up?
1: Uh, Melbourne. Okay. And
0: mm. do you have any particular early memories from your childhood? Like when you think of your own childhood, what's the first memory that comes to mind?
1: Hanging out a window with someone hanging onto my ankles because, I, as a little as a little kid, I'd crawl out onto a uh, balcony or something. And I don't know whether that is an actual memory or whether it's just because people have told me that's what happened. But um, no, I grew up in a, in a suburb called Middle Park, but I spent a lot of my earlier life in the Nornington Peninsula down at Rosebud.
0: Oh, wow. Used to, okay. He ran a
1: holiday resort down there.
0: Wow. Middle Park's a beautiful suburb now. Um, yeah, it's, it's certainly boomed. Stunning stunning to live. And and Rosebud as well. So my my in laws, I guess you could call them. They they live down at um, I don't know when the last time you were in Melbourne, but if you if you know Safety Beach and Rye, they've actually oh, built yes. a marina at Safety Beach now. So the water goes over the road, and there's now uh, a new suburb called Martha Cove, and it's like a a marina. But they've built out an entire suburb around it it's quite nice now like they've got an iga they've got cafes restaurants and so forth so it's changed a lot
1: nothing like that when i lived there no it was uh,
0: even when i was when i was a kid growing up it didn't exist um it's only really existed in the last five to ten years i know they dredged that that area and created the um i don't actually know what they call it now that I think about it, but it goes over the road that goes between Safety Beach and Martha Cove. So the boats, you'll be going underneath the the water and you can see a ginormous, you know, forty foot yacht just going above you, which is such a surreal experience. It's like yeah, a, fantastic. yeah it's like a water bridge.
1: Yeah. Um
0: it's it's really, really it's it's an amazing feat of engineering. Yeah,
1: that's I haven't sure. been back there for many years, fifteen or twenty years probably. And yeah. uh, so it would be unrecognisable from where I grew up.
0: Yeah, it's gentrified a lot. It's changed a lot in the last fifteen years, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, Used to camp mainly
1: th- weekends. I was at boarding school because my uh, parents were pretty well occupied trying to run the holiday resort and so on.
0: And uh, <laughs> do you remember the name of the resort? Yeah, Lotus Lodge. Oh, Lotus Lodge. I think that still exists, doesn't it? Yes. It still exists. Sure. It's a
1: um, retirement village now.
0: Oh, is it really?
1: Well, at least it wow. was when my um, father got out of it. I think it's still a retirement village.
0: Uh-huh. Lotus Lodge. I'm going to have to check this out when I'm back down there. Yeah. Do you, when you think about growing up as a kid, were there lessons that, that you learnt, whether directly or indirectly from your parents that you still hold to this day?
1: Trying to tell the truth. They were very straight, straight people, uh, try, trying to do the best you could but not bemoaning the fact that you're not perfect. I think mm. perfect, perfectionism is one of the big, big no-nos of our lives and they, they had set re- realistic goals and encouraged me to reach them and so mm-hmm. I encourage, and they were a, a sort of an example to me of how to do that. Um, my father, during the depression years, I only heard about some of the things he did, but they really brilliant. The way they they've fought against adversity, of course, during the depression years, of course, it was dreadful trying to make mm-hmm. a living, trying to create comfort for your family. Uh, yeah. I admire them a lot.
0: Yeah, I remember my my grandmother, uh, she would have been born just, well, during, I think it was uh, 32. So, I I don't know when the Great Depression hit here in Australia, but I believe it was around 1929 till at least 1933. Yeah. And she grew up in West Gippsland. And Gippsland was probably the hardest hit region because it was mainly just farming. And... um, it's it's interesting to see how that applies to you them as an individual over their lifetime, like, and and how it sort of impacts you and your family later on. Like, she would always use a tea bag twice, and so my father always uses a tea bag twice. <laughs> it's just these little things yes. that sort of permeate, and and also that um, she loved the quote, uh, "Such is life." That. Uh, I think it's the Ned Kelly quote, right? I don't know if he originally came up with it, but he was the one who famously coined the term. Yes, Um, But uh, I think it just – that era gave that generation, I don't know, a sense of realism, understanding the reality of life, but also being able to look at the positives of what you actually have and doing what you can with what you have. I think
1: that's part of having a sort of a moral toughness, isn't it? yeah. Whereas, of course, today the moral toughness has been well submerged with a sort of the sense of entitlement of you know, uh, I should have everything. One hundred
0: percent. Yes. It's- yeah, because because we've lived in this age, you know, since really World War One, uh, World War Two, where we've lived in a world of sort of uh, abundance, Yes. and really in the last, you could say, the last thirty. Since the end of the Vietnam War, probably the 80s, that's when the abundance has really, really trickled through. I mean, there haven't been many world wars. There haven't been many major wars for the last 20 years, although you could talk about Iraq and Afghanistan, but uh, that wasn't a war that involved massive amounts of people. It was a very specific war. Yeah. Um, Actually – I would would say that's the case.
1: Yeah, with – Uh, But the fact is that most of my friends who are around about the same age were all getting very ancient now, feel we were very, very fortunate to grow up when we did, though, Uh, sort of growing Mm -hmm. up between the wars and not having to go to to slaughter people. Jobs were – you just walked into a job and there was a certain um, feeling of, well – if that didn't work out, there was another job available. Um, mm-hmm. And li- life in many, many ways I think was very, very pleasant in, in those days. And in, in the uh, – all my favourite music now is the stuff from the, the uh, 30s, 40s, mm-hmm. 60s and so on. But, uh, <laughs> uh, that's when you know you're old. But the fact is it was just a good life. It really was. And – I mean, then it, it swung it, it went from deprivation to reason you know pretty pleasant, and then it swung the other way. and now we've got the the entitlement thing and the uh, it's, it seems to me it's like a pendulum swinging. It happens in so many mm. ways that it swings one way and then corrects and comes and overcorrects the other way. Reminds me a lot of football matches. You see a, a team's got a run-on, unless they make the most of it, while they've got the run-on, things change and it's suddenly they're on the receiving end. And the, I think we were lucky enough to make the, make the most of a very pleasant lifestyle.
0: There's something to that because I feel like, you know, all the research and knowledge I've built over what makes someone healthy is you don't want to be under too much stress, but you don't want to be under too little stress. Mm. Like for the body to, you know, they talk about things like sauna use. Sauna use is very uh, very useful because it creates something called heat shock protein. So putting your body in a state of shock of some sorts has positive effects, you know, a few days later. So there is benefit to that. And I, I'd agree, I think that, it may be in an era where things weren't as abundant, you're in this constant state of trying to exist, but you're also, you know, you're just getting by if that makes sense. Or you're you're surviving. So I don't know. I'm trying I think that's the analogy that the best explains it to me, at least. But you, you mentioned before about how you could just go in and you know you apply for a job, and then if you don't get it, you go on to the next one. Mm. I think you your career is really interesting because you started out as a clinical psychologist and then you you focus more on, I think, well, I know you you said to me on the phone we we caught up uh, maybe it's a few weeks ago. you said that you rarely uh, see patients anymore, if not at all, but for a, still during your career, you were seeing people. And I guess I'm curious, why study psychology? Where did this all come from?
1: Well, it wasn't where I, where I started. I started off, in fact, um, as a secondary school teacher. And, oh, wow. And my first appointment was to a, a junior te- technical school. I won't mention huh. where and so on, which was a, a breeding ground for criminals of the future. And strangely enough, the worse the kids were, the better I got on with them, and uh, I learned a bit about myself there. But after, after I got interested in how people ticked, and uh, so when I became a, a trainer of teachers, I did some psychology courses, and I always remember the the first uh, a great learning experience. The, the lecturer wandered in uh, and said, well, if you want to of uh, taking this course, if you're hoping that you're going to learn more about how you are or how other people are, forget it. You're not going to do that. And I thought, now, that's a great motivation. <laughs> great motivation. He doesn't know much psychology, this guy, which he didn't. <laughs> um, and, in fact, I had to <laughs> – just recently I was asked to write a, a, a chapter for a book which, in fact, hasn't seen the light of day. It was um, – about uh, about a half a dozen people who had been successful therapists um, were Mm -hmm. asked what was the greatest uh, thing they had to overcome, the greatest barrier they had to overcome to be successful. And some of the others, they really had done it tough compared to me, um, overcome terrific problems mentally, sometimes physically and so on. And I realised the big problem I had to overcome was the uh, academic education in psychology because mm. I found in my therapy work and everything, and I still I still see a few patients, but I don't um, seek new ones much anymore. Um, mm. It's when you're good at doing something, it's a good idea to keep doing it for as long as possible until you drop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, I'd agree
0: with that.
1: And I try, and I've spent a lot of time refining what I do, simplifying it terrifically. Because most of the aspects of psychology that are helpful to people, and that's particularly traders, sports people, and so on, is simplicity. To try to make some of some of the really the techniques that have been around for centuries, they're still the best ones. Psychology picks them up and says, "Look, what we've found." Well, yes. Yes, they, they have found it, but it was there in the, in the first place and so on. And really yeah. simple things. Now, look, just take an example. I had a, someone recently who's been going to a psychiatrist for donkey's years and can talk all of the yeah. jargon very well and so on, but he's still got the problem. And I did something with him very simple he was someone like a lot of people who get very anxious because they, they worry about things incessantly and think in ways that undermine Oh, yeah. And what I got him to do was to set worry time for himself. So he'd set a time, let's say it was th- any time, but 4.30 in the afternoon, and let's say it was going to be quarter of an hour worry time. And in that worry time, he was not allowed to do anything else but worry and, and get anxious and fretful and, and, <laughs> and so on and write down all the things that were bothering him. If he filled up his heart, his, his quarter of an hour, then he had to repeat stuff. He had to keep writing for a quarter of an hour about all his miseries and, and things that were upsetting him. The next day, he still had his worry time, but when he came to it, what he did was read what he'd written the day before and then set fire to it. There is something <laughs> symbolic about burning things. There's a, mm. It's sort of an end. Of it. The interesting thing was after about a, only, it's very quick, after about a week or so, so many of the things that he'd been bothered about, he didn't bother about anymore. He couldn't, didn't even think about them. Now, mm. you can't get much simpler than something like that, but those sort of I things like work. I, I use those all the time. They work.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting. Because I had I had anxiety for a period of time. Mine mine mainly fe- manifested into a, a, panic disorder, and um, I'd never ever heard a psychologist speak about the uh, the the symbolism of right like I I definitely went through that practice where you write down what you're worrying about, and this could be used by anyone. Yeah. You know, if if someone's a trader and they're thinking about what they're doing in their week to week or day to day and what they're worrying about that's that's really interesting to write that down and then to burn it and to and to see like for your brain because the biggest thing for us is is seeing something i think i think the way that the the eyes perceive things and how that registers in the brain is a lot different to sound and that is super in- I feel like I want to go try this immediately after this interview well it's, <laughs> but
1: um, it works and that's that's all I'm concerned about they psychology is trying to become very very scientific and that's understandable get more prestige and so on and they talk about um, well things that have been tested but, and that they mean by all the statistical methods and the, um, the studies that are done but I reckon really. Mm. What you work, you find out what works with people. Uh, as a therapist, I was very locked into the idea that if someone came to me for some help with a particular thing, I would regard it as successful if I helped them get that particular thing. Not necessarily mm-hmm. something I think they ought to have, but to help them get what they wanted. And then mm. uh, let them expand out and find they could use the same techniques to achieve other things. Because it all comes back to simplicity. I think I mentioned to you over the phone when we were chatting that I've tried to simplify my life more and more and more because most of the things that work are very simple.
0: I'd agree with that. And I think that's a commonality amongst the interviews we've had with the people who are successful is simplicity in what they're doing is often key. And I I do remember you mentioning that over the phone that you're trying to cut out more and more things to make life a lot easier. Uh, and at least more enjoyable. I think you could say that. Like complexity definitely, I feel like complexity when it's overwhelming can be an awful experience. Mm. And this, this has me thinking about like, you know, you went from a focus on positive psychology and it sounds like getting people through problems rather than, dwelling and sitting on their problems so yes the part the, the journey of a psychologist is to sit and ex- and examine the problems that the people believe they have so you can look at it from all angles and then show them in a lot of cases how silly these problems and I know speaking from having anxiety how silly these problems can actually be
1: yes but again how it, do you, look I think this there's, there's a very useful mantra that we can use there's been a um, an idea around for a long time which everyone says, oh, yes, it's a wonderful idea, but they don't do it. And that is mm. this idea of living one day at a time. Um, yeah. Most people don't do it. But, in fact, if I, I might have someone um, that I'm working with and they're, they're telling me about this terrible problem they've got and how awful it was and so on, and I'll say, where are you now? And after they register for me and they say, oh, well, you know, I'm here. What's the time now? And I said, have you got this problem here and now? At this moment, do you have to think about it? Well, no, I don't. And, in fact, if you can bring yourself back to every time you're just getting yourself in a stew about something, you think, well, look, here and now, this is not a problem to me. Mm. Enjoy this moment. And you try to build yeah. each day as many pleasant things is possible so that for here and now is as pleasant as you can make
0: it. Being mindful, being present in the moment—that was the biggest lesson that I learned from yeah, my psychologist. One. Um, and it's funny because anxiety is a disease of worrying about the future, whereas or future potent, potential future rather. Whereas uh, depression can be not a nostalgia, but a focus on the past, and yeah. I feel like. Looking at it like that is very, very handy because it reminds you that there's a past and a present and a future, and that we all can do better on focusing on the present because, you know, the lifestyle we live today makes us want to focus on the present more. Sorry, on the future more, rather. And unfortunately,
1: that is considered now, particularly for women, but for, for people generally, that is the main source of anxiety in our society worrying mm. about the things that never happen. There was a yeah. big study done in the States in, oh, years ago. About 17,000 people were asked, what's the one thing that you're most worried about happening in the next 12 months? And when they went back to find out how much of this had happened or these things that people were mm-hmm. worried about the whole year, 1.8%, I think it was, that's about all. People that spend all that time fretting, worrying, getting upset about things that never happen, and that's the—I think—one of the biggest problems, if not the biggest, that we handle and haven't faced in our lives.
0: Yeah, and I—I I, I just say from my own anecdotal experience that is—that's the best thing you can do. I remember when I had my anxiety and panic disorder, it manifested into this weird thing around eating solid food. Basically, I had like visceral hypersensitivity, and so. Long story short, you get to this point where you're so deep into it, you can't eat solid food and you're blending your food because you're paranoid about choking on food. But it's just it's, – it's so – like I remember one of the things I did is I looked up the statistics of people who actually choke every year in Australia and it is so low and so more relevant to people who have pre-existing conditions that to have that happen, you would already have something wrong most of the times. Mm. There are rare cases where, you know, someone's chewing gum and they decide to go lie down and start doing some weights and breathe in, you know, that they get the gum caught in their throat. But it is it is really, really rare. Mm. And so, doing those sorts of exercises I found so useful. And then, of course, you look at it in hindsight and uh, it just seems so so silly, I think. Yeah, Um,
1: and it's unfortunate that people spoil, you know, really spoil their lives, go through their whole lives. uh, Yeah. Thinking in ways that are just so damaging. Um, Yeah. uh, It's not the things that happen to us that really bother us at all. It's the way we choose to think about the things that happen to us. And Mm. I suppose what a, um, a psychologist does or attempts to do is to guide people into thinking in ways that help them instead of ways that harm them. I think that's what mm. it boils down to. And that can often be done in very simple ways. For example, one of the things that I, um, I got onto doing years and years and years ago is um, getting people to imagine they're walking down a corridor and um, the, there's um, something stopping them, uh, some sort of barrier. And there's um, on the barrier there's an arrow... And it's a dump rubbish here. And one side of the corridor, there's a chute, a very special chute. Everything you dump down, it disappears out of your mind, disappears out of your life, and so that you get rid of stuff, Uh people you don't want to keep in your life, memories you don't want, and so on. And then the barrier there is what's holding you back and you destroy your barrier. And, in Mm. fact, something as simple as that, If people practice every day, they they get rid of a lot of the stuff that really bothers them, and gets rid of a lot of people out of their lives they don't want to keep in their lives. Yeah, and And this is simple.
0: And this is where a lot of this work that you've done can be applied to trading, because someone's probably sitting there and thinking, "Well, they're talking about people, but you can still apply this mindset and methodology to systems, authorities." forms of commentary that you'd look at as part of your trading, so to speak. I mean, yes. um, I feel like in Louise's interview, she actually mentioned this, that a lot of people worry about, you know, what's the future going to be like when I'm trading this way or that way? And she said the best thing to do, and I feel like she's, she's probably learned this from from yourself, is coming up with a, a plan. And that is similar to putting something on a piece of paper. Yeah. So... You're defining it, um, you're dictating how you emotionally react because emotions are the worst thing when, (laughs) when trading and going through that process can help an individual who is wanting to become better at trading, I guess. Yes,
1: I think, in fact, when it all boils down, again, when you think of simplicity and so on, you need to get a mechanical trading plan that you have some confidence in and just trade it automatically. Don't think, will I enter here or not? If the signal's there, you do it. Will I get Mm. out here or not? If that's where your stop says to get out, you get out. Now, that's too obvious to be of much value, but so many people don't do it. They'll get Mm. a a mechanical system that works, but they have to second-guess it or start doubting Mm. about it. And one Mm. of the things I I get people to do who have – see, some people I think have a lot of trouble – that they're good analysts. They can work out what's going to happen. I know a number of people who are quite brilliant at working out what markets are going to do, but they simply find it virtually impossible to actually ring the broker and put the uh, trade on. And I usually try to get them working with someone else, perhaps a member of the family or a friend or something like that. And they do the analysis, but then hand on the, the results of their analysis to the friend or family member, and they put the trade on. And often Mm. that's something as simple as that solves a lot of of the emotional trouble.
0: So it's almost like a level of accountability in some form. Instead of being an individual trying to improve their their issues in life, um, let's, let's say anxiety and seeing a psychologist that holds them accountable, it's having someone that has a level of authority or importance in their life and that can help them. I guess, not directly coach them, but can help them get through those specific moments.
1: Yes. I think it's very handy. Uh, Mm. There'll be times when if you try to do everything by yourself, you get yourself into a very uh, useless state in a way that you talk, Mm. like you talk yourself, you think yourself into um, often, denigrating yourself and feeling, God, you're you're a terrible trader. And because I'm a terrible trader, I'm a terrible person, which sounds ridiculous, but that happens again and again. (laughs) But people, uh, they affect too much importance to things. Something that was very valuable to to me in my early days when I was trading and um, like most people, you you worry about your um, losses and um, uh, and the ability that you perhaps wonder should I put the trade on and so on, something that Larry Williams, the American futures trader, said resonated with me. And he said, look, what you do is get used to putting bets on. Bets are safe small mm. that It doesn't matter whether they win or lose. The races on not the football games, the baseball games, and whatever other else. You put bets on left, right and centre. Uh, not worrying whether they win, lose, or whatever, and he said, "Off oh, by the t- it doesn't take long doing that before you find you can trade a lot more comfortably without worrying incessantly about whether it'll win or lose." And I think that was pretty good advice, actually.
0: It sounds like good advice. Um, you know, we're talking before about Harry, Doctor Harry, the psychologist, and now I'm thinking about Doctor Harry, the trader. Um, I looked at your books and. You know, you've written about a bunch of all, a bunch of many different things rather, um, stress, success, winning, uh, one of them only around uh, trading specifically. And I can, I, it seems like trading for you came on later on in life. Yeah. So I am guess I'm curious how, you know, I think you and Louise met at, at your broker in 1997 and you both got along talking Trading and whatnot. I guess. What was your initial intrigue in financial markets as a psychologist?
1: I was just when I, when I was in Melbourne, actually, I had some friends who um, seemed to get a lot of fun out of trading the markets. They traded. They were pretty sensible. Not all of them. A couple of them taught me a lesson of how not to do it, and I just felt, oh, this this looks something that could be interesting that I think if I did, if I managed it properly, it wouldn't cost me much if I got it wrong anyway. And I just got more and more interested in it as a challenge because I think the big thing with trading is not chasing wealth and so on. I think trading is a voyage of self-discovery. It's a very, very effective way of learning about yourself, of how you handle Ups and downs, how you you think, how you talk to yourself, and so on. I think it's very valuable from that that, mm-hmm. point of view. and I think that was basically my interest in it for a long time. I never traded big big amounts, and so on. I I had runs where I was pretty successful, others when I didn't. So I, I think probably finished pretty pretty level. I think uh, <laughs> it was just sort of like a, a challenge to find a way of um, predicting an event that was going to happen. Uh, mm. And yeah, you know, I think challenges like that can be a lot of fun.
0: Do you think that there's a competitive advantage there that psychologists can have against your average trader? And if so, what do you think those key principles are?
1: Well, I don't know if I I'd generalize there because I'm – I'm not a conventional psychologist. Um, Climate psychology is, as I said, attempting to be more and more scientific. And um, I think, unfortunately, that's made them overcomplicate things. So that many of the psychologists I know, I know some very good ones, and the very good ones are ones who are just drawing on their own life experiences and so on, rather than being controlled by academic approaches to psychology, which I think don't get you very far. But Um, what it boils down to is not being a psychologist or a teacher or anything else. It's the sort of person you are, how you share yourself with the people you're trying to help Um, Mm. and being a remote sort of um, an expert who sits in judgment and so on. Where psychologists can help themselves a lot, though, I think, is learning from the interactions they have with their patients. Mm-hmm. You shut up a bit instead of sharing your vast knowledge with everyone. People usually tell them, uh, tell, tell, you how to, um, what you should be doing with them. I still remember a lady years and years ago, this was, she was very distraught. She ran her own business and she was very good at it. But she had a cash flow problem and it was upsetting it terrifically and she was a real mess and she wanted some help with it. And what I got her to do, I said, look, all I want you to do now is just sit here quietly for a few minutes, close your eyes and just let your mind drift anywhere you like and I think you'll find you've got an answer. So we waited for a while and suddenly she opened her eyes and said, I know what I've got to do. To solve problems, and she went ahead and did it. <laughs> people, as a rule, know what they need.
0: Sometimes yeah, they do.
1: They don't know what they they don't know they know it, and yeah. you have to give them the chance to come out for these to find these things for
0: themselves. That is a hundred percent true, and I feel like that's where giving people the opportunity to voice things and why psychology is so important, because people in the social setting will feel obliged to to thoroughly explain what is actually going on and by prompting them, they work out the problems themselves. Yes. That's what I think. I mean, I, I'd assume that was the case for you working as a clinical psychologist. The more you prompt people, the more they actually come to their own realisation, so to speak, rather than having to be told.
1: Yes. I think... We, we work on the assumption, I mean, even, uh, I mean, I was a, an academic, well, not a very good academic, at universities, and while I, I always tried to put a practical slant on whatever I was doing, which, which made me very unpopular at universities, it doesn't go well. But you, I think, try to do the things that encourage people to feel better about themselves. Mm. Now, if you try to tell them what to do all the time, say you should do this, you should do that, and so on, you're not going to get far. Now, there was years and years ago, there was a book published, The Five Minute Solution, I think it was called, it was done by a couple of businessmen anyway. They were looking at various firms and trying to find out why some firms succeeded and others didn't. And when it all boiled down, it boiled down to one key thing. The successful firms, the executives and so on, encouraged people and to do things and attempted to catch them out doing things well and praise them for it. Mm. Companies that didn't do well, they were constantly uh, monitoring their people, uh, catching them out doing something wrong and blaming them for it. And when you come to think of it, unfortunately that's what happens at schools too much so much it happens with families that we're so and it happens with ourselves that we're really good at finding something we've done wrong and blaming ourselves for us and putting ourselves down and so on instead of Mm. finding something we've done well and there's often lots and lots of things and praising ourselves for it Mm. uh, often i used to start off seminars asking people um to think of a success experience and a failure experience. I had no trouble mm-hmm. with the failure experiences, no trouble at all. But people, some people had a lot of trouble thinking of a single success experience. And they heard <laughs> what a few of the other people said about it and said, oh, well, I did that. And they, in fact, hadn't called it a success. But it's important to find things you think you've done well, no matter how trivial, and sort of think, gee, I'm glad I did that. A bit of a pat on the shoulder for mm instead of blaming yourself for things. And yet we do it far too much, I think.
0: I've got to ask before I mentioned about Louise and she's obviously very glowing of you and the impact that you've had on her life. I guess I was curious, being involved in some of the the work you've done together, what has she taught you in particular?
1: Uh, it was just simply being able to exchange views. Both of us were um, did a lot of, Presentations and so on, and when we did uh, programs for the discs and that together, it was just and mm. Chris Tate also. But the fact is, we just seem to gel. We, as someone once said, it was a bit like listening to the St- Astaire and Rogers, uh, <laughs> these the, the dancers, and that we just seem to complement each other, of course. Mm. Um, Louise a lot more a lot younger than I was, and apparently I had a very good effect on her. She read my plus factor, the uh, probably that's the most it is the most successful book I wrote, and um, mm. she felt it helped her immensely. But I learned from her too that some of the some of the things she was doing meshed in with what I was doing, and we bounced off each other. We just simply. When we got together, we just generated a lot of good ideas.
0: Yeah, you both seem to have that sort of free-flowing mindset and ability to bounce ideas around the way humans think and then you apply it in your own fields. I mean, I I think that Louise, she did mention in the foreword to, to one of your books, the plus factor and the effect it had on her life and how from that moment she was like, yep, psychology is definitely one of my key specialty areas that I love and that I want to continue studying because this guy gets it. And, and it's good to see that. It's always good to see people who can really gel and bounce off each other. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I had a lot of fun doing the interview with Louise. Um, she definitely knows her things about psychology, that's for yeah, sure. she sure does. <laughs> now, I'm looking at the time and we've already nearly cracked on to 45 minutes. So I want to jump into some rapid-fire questions for you Okay. finish off. Um, first question for you, what does your morning routine look like? Dull.
1: These days uh, I um, look after the dog first or she she get angry at me and um, <laughs> make sure that every day I have lots of things to keep me um, interested. My wife's had to, unfortunately, go into a a, a home and uh, I've had to readjust my life quite dramatically. But I think the key Mm -hmm. thing is you've got to have things to keep you busy and Mm -hmm. they can be very simple things, reading, um, walking the dog, talking to friends, that sort of thing. But rather than sit around and do very little, most of the unhappy people I know are like that.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. The more – I think you said to me that you want to work until you drop and I, I'd agree. I don't think I could ever retire
1: no.
0: um, and I'll never stop reading. I love reading. So I 100% agree on that. Evening routine, what do you sort of do to to decompress at night? Are you regularly watching anything in particular? I, I, used,
1: uh, I used to watch um TV much at all but now that uh... – Oh, it's, it's possible to see so many of the old movies and that sort of thing. I often, uh, the, when, once the dog sees me settling down to watch something, plonk, she's on my lap, and we, <laughs> we watch the uh, a lot of the old movies together. Uh-huh. Uh, and I find that that's very relaxing. Uh,
0: yeah, very, very relaxing. I know that you've, uh, you've got a King Charles Spaniel. Cavalier King, uh. Spaniel.
1: Yes, we... Um, um uh, my wife was getting ill and that and we after our last dog, which was a whippet, died, she said, Oh, we wouldn't need it have another dog but two months without a dog we couldn't stand it. And we <laughs> uh, there was a breeder that we knew and she had a this mature age Cavalier King Charles Spaniel who was deaf and wanted a good home for it and we'd we'd looked after deaf dogs before and so on. So we gave it a home and she's been a wonderful dog.
0: Yeah. One. Whippets are whippets are a wonderful breed as well. My parents got one about a year ago. Yeah, pretty dashing. Um, oh wow! Okay. Um, all right. Last question for you. If you could name, this is a tough one, the best purchase or a purchase that has had the most positive impact on your life, and it's got to be under two hundred dollars. So it could be a gadget, it could be an event, an experience. Is there something that comes to mind for you at all?
1: Just as well you put a, a, t- a price limit on because because I I, <laughs> I have a, um, an E Type J Roadster and legs oh. work, and legs hurt so much now I can't get I can get into it and can't get out of the bloody thing. So that it's, <laughs> uh, but no, I think in fact when you mention that I think of a book, uh, a book by. Um, Frankl, Victor Frankl, man. Oh wow! Man's search for meaning. That had a, a beautiful a, book. Its influence on my life, tremendous influence. Yeah. and I still, I, I still use so many of the ideas
0: from that. I just read that book. Oh, have you? The first time ever. Yeah, I can't believe that I I hadn't read it because I read a lot, and everyone had recommended it and said you've got to read the Victor Frankl book. Yeah. It's an absolute yeah. classic. I would put that in my top three books that I've read without a doubt. I think that every single person needs to read that. It is super cheap. It is short. It's very easy to read and it's created like a story yeah. because it is talking about his life. And he lived the life. He,
1: he did what he, he – he found a way of survival.
0: Yeah. I mean, the the quote that stands out to me is that um, uh, he who has any why can bear anyhow, which is I think is really important. So you know, he speaks to the fact that the people that often started to pass away from disease in the camps were the ones who just started to give up on life and you, yes. and just they they didn't have a reason to live. And I think that can be applied to for everyone in their day to day lives. If you don't have a why. Uh, everything will become unbearable.
1: Yeah, you've got you've as you as you were saying, you keep doing things until you drop, um, rather than just uh, shutting the door on things you've done because you you've got older and retire and so on. If you can still do something reasonably well, I think you keep trying to do it until you until it becomes obvious you can't do it well anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, look, Doctor Harry. Thank you so much for uh, for doing this with me. I know it was a bit of uh, trouble at the start getting set up, so uh, apologies for that, but I'm, I'm so paid. glad we got this done.
1: In my efforts to be simplistic, I've, I haven't been <laughs> keeping up with technology the way I used to.
0: Louise told me we had to get this done, and so I took her word for it, so um, I knew it was going to be worth it. Um, but look, Harry, thank you so much for coming on the Margin Call podcast. Thanks very much, Jordan. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes and consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or YouTube by searching GoMarkets, that's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S. Until next time, thanks for listening.